Hello and welcome to Local Legends. I'm Chi, outdoor fitness coach, and I am your host. Local Legends is a conversation with passionate cyclists in Southern California, sharing their stories of pushing through, taking a chance on themselves, and learning and growing to fuel their love for riding. Enjoy my next Local Legend. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 32, where I get to interview Chris Powell, also known as Good Flow. Um, if you've, anybody's ever watched Chris ride, you know he is such a graceful, fluid racer, just as his name suggests. And this comes from all his years racing at the elite pro level of both BMX and four cross. Um, more recently, Chris is now doing a lot more road riding and gravel riding and recently won the overall summer series in the men's 16 to 48, where he raced and dropped his drop bar um, in the mountain bike category. So Chris, um, I've known Chris for a while. And when I first met him, I didn't know who he was. Um, and I know this is kind of a PG, but we were, he was going down shits and everybody knows in PQ, it's a trail that um, is pretty steep and it's not super technical, but it is technical enough that you need to know what you're doing. And so we were at the bottom with some friends and somebody had gotten a flat. So while we were fixing it, I noticed somebody, somebody coming down and the way that they came down was something I had never seen before. I've never seen anybody go down shits so fluid. He gets to the bottom and he so, so kindly asked, hey, do you guys need some help? And we were like, oh yeah, we're just fixing this flat. And he gets off his bike, helps us out. And before you know it, he's fixed our flat and we're ready, he's ready to go, we're ready to go. And he just takes off. And I'm like, who was that? And so that was good flow. I didn't even know his first name or his last name. So I followed him on Strava, checking out all his times on his descent and just being completely blown away by the times that he was putting down for, for descending. So um, it just so happens at that time that I was working at Intuit. I was their fitness center manager. And so I spent a lot of time at tunnels, a lot of times at Del Mar Mesa and PQ and riding and would often, you know, cross paths with him. And so we got to kind of know of each other. And back in 2019, I didn't even have local legends um, podcast yet, but I asked him if I could interview him because I wanted to put an article out. I wanted to do something. And I really, he met, he did a, he had a huge impact on how I saw writing, which I will talk about in a little bit. Um, and he agreed. So we went to a Starbucks and sat there and I used my phone and recorded this interview with him for about an hour, not this interview, but a different interview. I talked all about his racing, his training, his nutrition, his work, all these awesome things. And it was a really good interview, um, I was an, but it was on an old phone and I didn't have enough storage and I ended up losing that interview, which was really upsetting to me. I, I was pretty, pretty bummed about that. Um, so here we are, you know, a couple years into Local Legends, and I said, Chris, I know we've interviewed you before, but you are a local legend. Can I interview you? And so um, he was very, very graciously accepted. Um, so this interview um, came about, and we went to see him at the Better Buzz headquarters where he works. Um, I 
oftentimes, if I can, I love to do my interviews in person. That's my preferred method. Um, so we, I went down to on University Avenue and got a nice tour, got a delicious horchata latte, which was, uh, like I just said, it was delicious. And we got to sit down and talk about his racing. Um, even though I had asked him about, about it before, we went a little bit deeper about his racing, his experience, the different kinds of racing, uh, highs and lows, and all the inspiration in between, which is a great, great story. He talked a lot about bikes and components and his passion just for riding. Um, since he was little, it's always been about a bike. And you know now the bike has changed, but he still just loves riding. Um, you may even hear some noise throughout the podcast in the background, a, a very faint noise, and that's the barista yelling out a name. So anyway, kind of bring you into the into the coffee shop a little bit. So the one thing I did want to mention about how Chris influenced my writing from that first time saw him come down come down shits. Um, it, I've always loved writing technical stuff and trying to improve my own skills. And when I saw him come down so fluid, it really made me want to get better on the bike and improve my um, my flow. And so um, he's definitely a person who has made an impact. Now, I love teaching skills to other people, and I continuously work on my own um, personal skills and flow um, on my own writing. So to me, Chris Powell is truly a local legend, um, not just for all his accomplishments, but um, his impact on on the community. So enjoy this conversation with Good Flow. All right. So stoked to have my next local legend, um, Chris Powell, also known as Good Flow. Um, again, Chris, thank you for this time. Better Buzz? Yeah, awesome. Thanks so much for uh, inviting me on the podcast and yeah, coming down here to, to Better Buzz to do this. Uh, honored that you'd ask and, uh, you know, more stoked anybody that's out there listening and taking time out of their day to, you know, hear about myself. Uh, it's pretty awesome. So thank you, everybody. Yeah. And as good flow, the name suggests, your writing is exceptional. Um, you ride different kinds of platforms. Um, currently, you just won the season Quick and Dirty Summer Series. Mountain bike racing on a drop bar, and you won the whole thing. And which I do want to talk to you more about that because right. that's impressive. Um, and you have fun doing it. I know that's kind of the thing. Talk to me about your riding and your racing experience because you did not do endurance racing when you first started. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I I'm a lifer on bikes. My my first memory in life is um, riding a bike. You know, to getting the training wheels off. And, uh, you know, that progressed quickly to jumping curbs like most kids, although I did it every single day for as long <laughs> as I could remember. And then uh, I found BMX at an early age. Okay. And, and I'd say that's got to really drive how my riding style has evolved, was just spending, you know, my whole youth uh, riding BMX, whether it was making jumps with my friends, riding around town, jumping curbs. Uh, eventually finding and going to BMX tracks and racing at them. Um, the the skills that you learn from riding a BMX bike uh, just force you to have to have flow, to be able to have surgical precision with your bike control, um, learning fundamental skills like jumping and pumping and carving turns and all these sorts of things. The, the balance point on a BMX bike is so narrow 
that if you can perfect it, um, you, you mm. get this incredible, you know, instinctive skill ingrained into your muscle memory. So that when you start riding other types of bikes, like a mountain bike, where there is much more forgiving balance point, um, you know, it, it makes it much easier to ride uh, all sorts of different types of bikes. Yeah. And so you were, how old when you started BMXing? BMXing? Yeah. Riding BMX. Yeah, B- BMXing. <laughs> well, I you mean, know, I was like probably three, four years old, oh, got, okay. the, got the training wheels off, but I, I started racing BMX and I went to my first track. I, I think I was in second grade and it was a fun story for me. I was a super shy kid growing up and my parents had found a series of books about all sorts of different types of sports, right? Like a series of books. And one of them was BMX racing. Okay. And, and I didn't even know it existed, but I yeah. saw it and learned about it and you know, tried to convince my parents to let me do it. And they were super risk averse and they didn't, you know, they want to wrap me in bubble wrap. They didn't want me racing bikes or motorcycles or do anything like that. But they said, if you can find a track, we'll take you to it. So I started cold calling bike shops. Oh. I was like a seven-year-old asking like, is there, you know, pre-internet obviously, right? Is there a BMX track? And, uh, you know, we, we found the local one and they, you know, they took me to it. And that was uh, really what sparked me going into starting to race and were you racing against other kids your age yeah absolutely. when you showed up you're like wait there's more kids like me yeah I think we went and practiced the first time and you know the BMX tracks for the most part are are very family friendly uh uh open and encouraging environment so you can go and you can just practice so went and did that for the first time and then came and raced uh BMX you know even now are separated by classes for boys and girls you can start in a, a beginner class. Okay. You have to get a certain amount of wins before mm-hmm. you get to the next uh, group up, which would be intermediate. And then you get a, another certain amount of wins. And then you go to expert and they're all by age group as well. So you race kids that are your age and of a similar skill proficiency as you mm-hmm. so that you have time, you know, the ability to race kids that are at about the same speed mm-hmm. and you don't just get blown okay. out of the water. Yeah. And then, you know, you progress to the, the higher levels up into the point where you're an expert. Um, you know, you, you can start racing regionally or nationally mm-hmm. against other kids who are you know, experts as well. And then there's a, a very, very competitive environment for kids to be able to reach, you know, an elite amateur level in BMX racing to the point where they're traveling nationally or even internationally okay. racing, uh, you know, other kids for legitimate titles as amateurs. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I started as, the, you know, kid showing up on a, a Toys R Us bike, you know, the equivalent of a Walmart bike, oh, to, yeah. you know, eventually being on a, a, a factory racing team for a, you know, bike manufacturer mm-hmm. by the time I was, I think, 12 and, and traveling the country racing nationally and, that's where that's you. you were raised nationally at the age of 12. So yeah. in like five years, yeah, it evolved to it. I mean, it was it, when I started, it, it wasn't all of the time we were going to racing, but I think around the time I was 11, I was racing consistently three to five nights a week locally, what? Oh. Um, you know, within like a, a two hour driving radius of my house. My parents were, you know, great in that respect. They sacrificed a, a lot of time to support that passion for me. Uh, and then I, I was doing national events that were relatively close, you know, West coast events. We were traveling yeah. significantly and, um, started making the main events on those. 
Um, so lawyer racing works there is you, you know, however many kids sign up is however many sign up and you go through heat races where a certain amount will qualify to the next round. Mm-hmm. Usually that's a quarterfinal round and then to a semifinal round and then to a final of eight riders. So, you know, if you're just starting to race nationals, making a main event, being in the final eight, it's a, you know, a huge thing, right? Yeah. Um, and then and that's a lot for a young kid to like get geared up and I'm sure you were nervous and, or were you just like, all right, I just want to ride my bike. Yeah. I, I loved it. The, being in the the heat of competition like that, it was yeah. you know, it was exciting. And then once you start getting the confidence to realize that you're competitive with kids who are consistently on the podium, or or even better, you know, there, there's a uh, you get points at nationals for how you do. And I think it's I don't know what it is today, but back then it would be six scores. Mm-hmm. So you know, first place is the most points at any given national, right? And then you accumulate points, and then at the end of the year, there's a final race mm-hmm. that's worth more points. And then tally up everybody's points and you would get a special number plate for your age group, right? One through 10, it's called a nag plate, national age group. And if you had a nag plate, you know, you were one of the best, you know, that was your ranking for all of the kids in the country, right? Um, so that was the real chase. And when you're, when you're not, cool. when you're not nag ranked, but you're beating kids that are, then it, you start getting attention from potential sponsors who are looking for amateur riders to, yeah um you know promote their product uh and teams at least back in the the 90s when i was a kid racing bmx there was uh team points as well so there were manufacturers who would field a team of amateurs okay. and then you would take a, each individual amateur score you know add them up for each race right and then there were team rankings too so wow a big part of your life yeah it was huge Did your success well I like five questions. So your success, do you contribute that to your passion and like you just did it so much or did you feel like this is my body under, like, did you feel like you had a gift for it or did you just know that you had so many hours un- underneath you that you were that good? And uh, and then I was going to ask you, what yeah. was your best title on BMX? You were the national yeah. champion. Uh, no, uh, start with the second question. My the highest ranking I had achieved was a uh, uh, third at the world championships in 1997 wow. as a 15 year old in boys, which was a heartbreaker for me. I whole shot it and blew it. You what? <laughs> I got the whole shot. I was in first place through the first turn and blew, blew the lead and wound up third. So that was a heartbreaker. But on uh, there, there's also a, uh, BMX bikes, there's two types of bikes. That was a class bike, which is a 20 inch bike. There's also a cruiser class, which is a 24 inch uh-huh. BMX bike. And on that bike, my age group was lumped together as 15, 16 year old boys. And as a 15 year old, I was only, the only 15 year old to make the final eight. And then I got third place in that as well. So I was wow. third place in the class, but the the fastest 15 year old uh, in the world in that year and then um there you I go had, I think for nag plates i was third on both bikes uh that year as well okay so awesome. i was as a, a 15 year old that was the and i had stopped from injuries right around after that and i and i think like for the the first question for drive like yeah i, I think i just had like a you know a, a pretty high base level gift of being able to ride a bike um which at times you know c- can be a 
curse more than a blessing, honestly, because in a lot of types of writing, you can get away with not putting in the same amount of effort for someone who doesn't have the same amount of base skill, right? So, I mean, the old saying, right? Like hard work beats talent when the talent doesn't do the hard work. Yeah. Uh, at, at an elite level in the sport, that's absolutely true. You just need enough skill to be able to get you within range of the top riders in the world. But at the end of the day, if you're competing for a rainbow jersey or even a national champs jersey, you, you absolutely have to do the hard work. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, I, I didn't always, at least earlier on in my life or a racing career, understand that you needed to do the hard work because you could show up and be pretty competitive without necessarily putting it all in. Got uh, it. So it, it took a little bit of time to mature as a, a person and as a writer and to, to really understand and reflect on that you have a narrow window to compete at that level that you can't waste it and you need to start to to put the work in. Yeah. Um, I wanted to talk about the first sentence or the first part you were saying how um, the skills that you develop on a BMX bike, um, how, how, I'm trying to put it in words or visuals, like what what changed over time? You learned how to lean different. You learned about your foot position. Like what would, would you make mistakes and like fall? Like what, what, how did you fine tune that body, that skill, those skills? Yeah, just practice, see time, right? Just, so I'll, just I'll fine tune it. Yeah, and, and on a BMX bike and to, to some extent on a, a hard tail, like dirt jumper style mountain bike, mm -hmm. that's probably the, the closest thing that okay. a lot of people can relate to riding, taking it to a pump track or, or dirt jumps. You just have to be so precise and you get called out quick when you're not, um, especially if you're doing a pump track or, or doing things like dirt jumping where you have to have uh, rhythm and flow to carry your momentum so that you can keep doing successive obstacles in whatever the line is that you're doing. Mm -hmm. So you get it, you know, it's an immediate feedback oh, okay. on those kinds of bikes. Yeah. Like it, it, if you bonk something and don't carry your speed, don't carve the turn right, like you're not going to progress through the the track or the obstacle line of obstacles that you're doing yeah so it just forces you to um really dial in your your technique yeah to be able to get through whatever it is that you're doing did you ever have did you just watch other people and figure it out did you ever get a, like have somebody coach you or you just or were you just looking for a feeling when you were doing that we're like that is the way it's supposed to feel or were you like time like what what did new made you pro keep progressing yeah it's uh not never worked with a writing coach that was just all self-taught based on feeling and then uh a recognition at some point that I was doing things that other people couldn't oh. couldn't do oh, right even cool. we that were like much older yeah. than me and like that was fun and exciting and encouraging and like wants you to to keep pushing the limits yeah. of what you're doing as well because when you know when you're a kid racing or an early teenager you know, at, at least for me the dream was to do it professionally and okay uh, it was always like yeah I need to progress my skills as much as I possibly can to be able to get to a point where when I'm you know 18 19 and in a window where I could transition to be racing pro or or elite 
that you know, I need to have the best skills that I possibly can. So it wow. became a, a maniacal obsession yeah. with being as best as I possibly could from a, a technical standpoint to be able to be better than everybody that I was racing against. And also a lot of that was driven from my size too. I'm just a shorter person at, at five, six. So, you know, I'm competing again, especially in BMX, you're competing against people that had been, you know, they had growth spurts much earlier than I did. So I was obviously already smaller than them. And even when I was full grown, I was smaller than them. And that's a, a, a sport that's driven by raw power. So I was at a, you know, a, a fundamental disadvantage just based on the genetics that I was you know, given from my parents. So I, I had to focus on having really good skills to be able to just ride better than other people uh, to make up for a lack of raw power. So I had to have better track speed, which directly is, you know, having better flow on the track so that I'm conserving energy more than they are and carrying more speed than they would. Uh, better turning abilities so that I could carry more speed through turns or more often than not, because I didn't have the power out of the start of the race, I was having to cut through traffic and be making passes. So it was developing a, a race awareness to be able to take lines that other people may not be even thinking about, you know, whether it's in turns or straightaways so that I could be progressing, you know, back up to the front of the race. Yeah. Wow. Just like, imagining you going through the track um i i do want to talk go on but i have one more one more question about the bmx do you think it's a lost or more people should do it are you surprised that it's not bigger or is it actually bigger i mean i know it's a olympic sport yeah. now yeah. is it is it grown like i don't know a lot of people that are bmx i guess let me say yeah. that and i i think it's a it's a great environment for families and kids it is a little bit difficult to commit to the highest level of it because of the yeah. time investment involved yeah. with having to do all the travel and, and things like that. I think it's more important to just be doing that style of writing and to mix it into um, whatever your, your normal routine is for writing. And the most accessible thing, especially now for people is um, if you're blessed to live near somewhere that's got a pump track yeah. or a park that's got a bike park, um, you know, and VMX track, sprinkle it all in together to your mix of riding so that you can fine tune uh, jumping, pumping, and carving berms to develop those skill sets so that when you're out on the trail, you can ride proactively to be able to, you know, Avoid. Really, really attack the trail. And, and treat obstacles on the trail like they are things like you would find at a pump, at a pump track yeah. or BMX track. Yeah. And it, you know, it's not only going to improve your your overall riding and the speed at which you can ride, but it's going to make you a safer absolutely. rider too. Yeah. Because you can get yourself out of trouble. Oh, absolutely. A lot easier, yeah. right? Like you know, sometimes I'm sure a lot of people can relate. If you're bombing down a hill, full kamikaze style, and <laughs> you may you may have plans and intentions for where you want to go but sometimes things happen and you get squirrely and you wind up on the end up line, right? Which is wherever you wound up going. <laughs> and there may be a boulder or a, a, you know, a, a, rut. a rain rut or, or just something that you like, you can't ride through. And your only options are to take like immediate evasive action for self-preservation by bunny hopping it or, yeah. you know, doing something right to, yeah. to, to keep you from having a, a serious accident or just, have that accident and and i think 
having skills that you learn at a pump track um, or even at a, at a BMX track can help you make those quick decisions yeah. to be able to um, bunny hop over stuff, you know, carve around stuff, mm -hmm. things like that. And, and do it pretty confidently too, and you know, keep you safer and allow you to ride at higher speeds. Yeah, yeah, so so true. Okay, cool. Um, so you said you were racing 15, 16 year old. When did you start downhilling racing? Yeah, I like when did the the, the plateau go stop, from flat right? to downhill? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I um, I stopped racing BMX right around the time I was about to turn 16, I had a, an unfortunate string of injuries racing BMX. Um, I had a, a tibial plateau fracture in one of my knees, which at the time I was told was extremely rare, like one in a million type of injury where you would normally have an ACL tear, but instead of tearing the ACL, it pops the top off of your tibia. Oh. Uh, it was a longer recovery period than the ACL tear. It was like a six month recovery. And then in my first race back from that injury, I did it to the other knee. Oh God. And, God. You know, my, my parents were just like, God, we, we How? They, they really it soured them. And like, I think for me too, I was pretty down on having a, you know, almost a year of dealing with injuries as a, as a 15 year old. And I already sacrificed so much of like the normal kid experience to be racing at that level of BMX mm -hmm. that I, I stepped away from racing mm -hmm. for almost three years and just kind of lived a normal high school kid life. I still rode, you know, not obsessively, um, but I, I still rode mm -hmm. frequently and started riding a, a hardtail mountain bike just okay. for fun. Mm -hmm. And then when I went to my first year of junior college out of high school, where was this? It was at Foothill College in Los Altos in the, okay. the Bay Area. Cool. We had to take a PE class. <laughs> and one of the PE classes that was offered was mountain biking. Okay. So it's cool. like, yeah, yeah, of course I'm going to take it. So I, I signed up for it. And the first class we did, uh, we met at the trailhead of a, a trail called Alpine Road. Uh, in Los Altos or in Alpine, California, that connects up to the top of Page Mill Road. And it's mostly fire road mixed in with a little bit of single track, maybe like a minute of single track in the middle of it. And uh, got to the top of it, turned around and just ripped a descent out of it. And God, I was hooked. I mean, that was it. So I went back to, you know, being obsessed again, just from that first experience of ripping down a, a mountain on a on a mountain bike and this is in 2000 yeah that was in 90 that was in 2001 okay and then from that first day of class i was doing two a days oh for like two, two classes a day no or two two mountain bike rides a two day, mountain bike right? a day. yeah just like you know trail rides and then going dirt jumping like in the afternoons or, or vice versa and then, uh, what did your parents think when you're like, I'm taking mountain bike? And they're like, oh dear God, again. <laughs> I, I think that their perception of the risk was that it was less. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think. And, and at the time, you know, the, the types of racing that you could do that for gravity racing was either downhill racing or dual slalom racing. Yeah. I didn't even, I didn't think about downhill racing at that point at all, okay. but w when I started getting the urge to compete again, you know, I wanted to do dual slalom yeah. and you know, that you're racing head to head against another person, but you're on totally separate tracks. Yep. 
So unlike BMX, there's no chance for, yeah. you know, getting smashed in a turn. Like it's not a contact sport by any means. And, you know, that, that seemed really exciting to me. It was like having your own private BMX track down yeah. a mountain. Yeah. And uh, a lot of the guys that were heroes of mine when I was a, a young teenager had made the transition to racing dual slalom like uh, a Brian Lopes or an Eric Carter and you know, a handful of other guys too. So I, I knew that they would be, you know, a good opportunity for me to apply the skill set I had in BMX over to do a slalom. And I, I think within maybe two or three months of taking that class, I went to Big Bear, raced expert slalom and won it. What? <laughs> and then uh, came home and uh, kind of, my uh, my dad it's like is there a future for you racing amateur in the sport i was like no he said you should turn pro and uh god i'm almost tearing up I know. i'm almost tearing up thinking about it because uh, you know i went from like not having their support to like okay you want to do this like you you can put college on hold like you know chase your dream Aww. so just having your dad's support was just filled you up. Yeah. Huge. He uh he passed December 2020. So um, great memories of him. Oh <laughs> thank you for sharing that. Yeah. I had no idea the yeah. how the impact um I mean that parents have so much impact on children. Yeah, huge. And and what we say, what we don't say, how we support our children, and we don't want our children to get hurt. Right. So you understand why they're like, yeah. no. But so <laughs> he encouraged you to downhill yeah. professionally well, to, to, to race slalom. So, yeah. Okay. D downhill was still nothing that was on my radar at all. It was like, okay, let's let's race slalom. And you know, really, like at the time, I I didn't have a job. I was going to college, right? So I, I was. You know, you wanted to be a lawyer at this point. No. Oh. Okay. Yeah. No. So you just, just I was just going to junior college because I I didn't really commit to taking school seriously in high school to be able to go straight to college. So okay. Stayed at home. You know, went went to the JC route. Perfect. Yeah, and uh, but you can't. You know, in that kind of position, you you can't it's very difficult to travel, you know, especially significant travel racing nationally without the financial support of your parents or, um, or a sponsor. I mean, you can absolutely do it. And, um, you know, I have so much respect for people who are working nine to fives to self fund those efforts. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's incredible, but the reality of it is, is when you have that type of split focus, um, it's very difficult to put the time necessary in to train at a level to compete with riders that are doing it only living and breathing that 100%, right? Um, so what did so, you do? Yeah, so I, I started going to junior college one semester a year, okay. and then I was racing, you know, in effectively in the, the spring and the summer. I did dual slalom for about a year. And then it was a, a Norba series at the time. And then they abruptly switched to four cross. Uh -huh. Okay, you tell me that. <laughs> so I, I started I started racing slalom and kind of got you know, my parents' support on board to race slalom under the, under the premise that I was going to have my own special track and not have to worry about a contact sport. And then it switched to four cross. Which is like which, pump track. I mean, like BMX. Yeah, downhill. It's, it's like BMX. Down a down a hill on a man-made track 
The, the tracks at the time were very groomed. So it really was a downhill BMX track four at a time. And there was almost no rules, right? So unlike BMX, like where there was even, you know, unwritten rules about how you would ride and treat your competitors for cross, you know, and especially from the, the length of the race being only 30 to 40 seconds. Whoever That's got, it? Yeah, whoever got the whole shot, the first to the first turn was usually, you know, winning or advancing to the next round. And the rest of the track was just desperation for people who were in third and fourth, right? <laughs> and, and so it was roller derby on a bicycle. Oh. And I mean, the, so it was funny. Like we got, you know, I got their support and got back into it. And then it turned out to be, you know, more into a sport that was exponentially more risky than, you know, thought it was going to be. But at the same time, like the four cross was so much better suited for my skill set mm -hmm. than dual slalom oh. ever was. Um, I did not have great success racing dual slalom. I was able to make finals and make it past a round or two, but I wasn't competitive for a win by any means or even for a podium. And then when I switched to four cross, you know, I was, and this was within a year or so of me turning pro, I was instantly in the mix, making podiums at a national level um, through connections that I had met, started getting uh, bike support from Specialized. And then while I was on that program, I uh, was, had uh, two back-to-back -back podiums at national events. I started getting factory support from them where they were allowing me to pit out of their, you know, expo setup at all of the races and uh, started doing my first couple world cups and first world cup, gosh, I think it was like within two years of turning pro, I qualified third and got a seventh or sixth, sixth or seventh at a, at a race. Oh my God. And incredible. Yeah. That, that got me a contract for a, a factory let's go. World Cup ride. Yeah. Let, wow. Let's go off to the races. And uh, that, you know, that was really. You're living your dream. Yeah, absolutely. That's awesome. Wow. And how old were you then by this time? 20? Yeah, maybe 21. Yeah. Early, early 20s. It's amazing. Where would you race in World Cup? Uh, at the time, uh, let's see, I got to race in uh, Vancouver, say Grouse Mountain, just outside of Vancouver, uh, Calgary, Fort William in Scotland, uh, Salzburg in Austria, Leger in France, Alpe d'Huez uh, in France as well, uh, Pila, Italy, Vigo, Spain, a uh, small town in Brazil, which probably was one of the coolest experiences <laughs> I've ever had in my life. Just because this this town, I, Balnario, I probably butched the name of the town, but it's uh, they had a downhill World Cup there with four cross, and it was a beach community. And in the winter, it's just like completely dead, and in the summer, they get you know, yeah. a massive influx of people. So the the influx of people in the summer are so big that they run out of beach room on this Riviera. So they built a chairlift from the main city up and over a mountain range to another beach area so that all of the people who come can chairlift up and over to the next beach. And then they used that chairlift for a downhill race on the mountain range that had separated the two beach areas. And they had the four cross race like right on the beach in, uh, in one of those areas. Yeah, it was just totally incredible. So. Um, there's probably some others that I'm, I'm botching in there, but the World Cup run for me lasted, I think, I, I did that for about four years, racing World Cups.
Yeah. Wow. Wow. I did I guess I, I knew you raced the national level. I just I didn't realize international level. Um that's incredible. Yeah. Um so good. Okay. So but then you did go to downhill. Yeah, I I did like I I never was great at it or or felt that I was it was never a goal for me because candidly I'm I'm just too risk averse. I have too much of a, a self-preservation instinct. <laughs> to to hang it out to the level that it requires yeah. to to win at, at the elite level yeah you, you have to be willing to die like yeah. you, you, so much so that like when you're going up for your run like you've made, you made this you, might be the last run well, you you've just you've made that decision you need, and you've accepted it so when you're in the start gate and those beeps are going it's getting hurt like whatever the level of consequence is just isn't even in your mind and you're going to put yourself in harm's way and, and your confidence level is so high that you think you're the master of the universe and nothing's ever going to happen to you and that's what it takes to win and i think for me like my my comfort level that i could get to was fast but it was never at that like that last 5% or whatever it is yeah. to, to get another 10 seconds, you know, off of, you know, what my comfort level was to be competing for a win. So my, my focus was always racing for cross. And there was a year where I had a personal goal of just wanting to make a world cup downhill final, which at the time I think was the, the top 60. So you do your seating run the day or two before the actual race and they take the top. 60 riders into mm -hmm. the final so I uh I did a handful of races and then made a final uh in Lady Alps France and I think I qualified 30 something ish or you know surprised me it was a relatively tame course so it's probably why I had success on it like I think they just took a long mower on a grassy hillside for like 80 percent of the course and there was only one rock garden so it was just high speed and uh you know fun for me and then in the the final the next day, I, I crashed in the first turn. Oh God! Oh God! <laughs> yeah. and, and I got horrible whiplash to the point where I like to turn my neck or to turn my head. I had to turn my shoulders. Yeah. Through, right. And then four cross was in the afternoon of that race. Oh no! So I I performed. You know, I had to go race, but I performed horribly. And it was kind of a, a self assessment at that point. It's like okay, like I don't. I don't believe that I'll or, or want to be at you know at an elite level competitive at this. And I wasn't getting paid to mm -hmm. race it. And the expectations for me were to perform in Forecross. So I, you know, I saw it as like a, a distraction and a, a more of a chance to get hurt. And I already blew that one race because of it. And I, you know, checked the box for my personal goal. Mm -hmm. Um, totally satisfied with it. Yeah. Um Sorry, I, when I listen to you, I just kind of get lost in what you're saying. So sometimes, which is good. Um, so you basically stopped racing per se at that point. Well, I, I stopped racing downhill okay. at that point. Yeah, I uh, I stopped racing four cross in 2007. Yeah, I, I think it was like, I, I had uh, my best season to date. I had uh, just came back from the race I was mentioning in mm -hmm. Brazil where I got in third. Mm -hmm. So it was my second World Cup podium. Um, Incredible. I, I think I was third maybe in points 
for the, the year and there was only one round left at that point. Uh, and, you know, I, I think things were really coming together for me at that point. I was still only uh, four years in from turning pro. So, you know, I had, I had a lot of um, progression up to then to develop as a, a mountain biker, right? Mm -hmm. and, and coming from BMX and, and taking a break, right? And competing against guys that were, you know, my heroes growing up that were doing it. Mm -hmm. Like I, I was just onto the level where I, I feel like I was um, confident and competitive mm -hmm. with them and the, and the results were consistently mm -hmm. happening. And I, the, the week after that race, I did a, a race in San Luis Obispo called mm -hmm. the Jeep King of the Mountain series. Okay. If anybody remembers that. So that, that it was a series that ran for a few years. It was an invitation race where I think they had eight men that were invited to come race it. It was a, a Y format race. So the first straightaway was like a dual solemn race. And then you merged into a single course. And then it was head to head racing, just like a, a four cross or a okay. dual race head to head. And then you would have time differential at the finish line. And then you go back up and re-rack them so that you would switch courses okay. for how you started on that first straightaway. Okay. And it was in the, the second round of that race. I, I had a freak accident um, with another racer, uh, Eric Carter. Again, you're one, one of my heroes growing up, right? What world champion from a, a few years back, one of the most decorated four cross racers, you know, in, in history, uh, him and Lopes. And we, we had a good battle. I think I had just got him on the, the first race and, you know, had a, a nothing differential. Really, it was going to be first to the finish line on that second round. And the last turn of that course was a, an S turn. I had a slight lead and he went for a, a, an inside move that I think normally he would have stuck. Um, but, you know, this particular day, he lost traction on the front end. His, his bike pushed into me. Uh, we had contact in the middle of the S turn and in an S turn, you know, you, you, you typically carve a turn, the first one, and then you're, un, you're completely unweighted while you're switching directions because you're popping out of the first turn into the next one while you transition from, you know, one side to the next. Yeah. Like a skier. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. So like you're, you're carving, 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 like you have all the G forces pushing you into the turn that you're doing. And then when you pop out of it, you're completely unweighted, levitating <laughs> as you're, as you're transitioning to the next one so that you can catch it and, and get that same pump out of the next turn. So what, while, you know, it was the perfect storm while he, lost traction and made contact with me while I was floating effectively changing directions we hit and it just caused me to body slam into the ground with my elbow in my stomach and you know it, it wasn't like it wasn't necessarily a like violent or like a horrific accident by any means but it was just the the, yeah the, the perfect storm of like the way I hit the ground um ruptured my spleen almost immediately and at the time like you know I, I hurt I thought I had a concussion because I felt headlight and just woozy and I, I had a concussion before and like it was a kind of a similar feeling at least at first so I, I had gone to the the athlete tent to just you know try to catch my breath and <laughs> recover, did you did you walk get that. up and walk yeah, away yeah, like I, nobody helped you no I mean there was like 50 feet left in the course and I, I got on my bike and rode down the rest of the course to the athlete tent and then sat in it and man by that time like I started getting like really really headlight similar to how like um 
if you're on a couch lying down too long and you get up too quick, like sometimes you get that, that head yeah. rush feeling. So I started getting that head rush feeling cyclically every like minute or so when I'm just sitting there. Oh. But then it like, it was progressing to the point where I was getting the head rush and then like passing out. Oh God. So the EMTs that were there just like trying to assure me that I was fine and that I had a big crash and that I had a headache and like, they, they, they didn't do their job. They didn't think much of it. And uh, thankfully my dad was there at the race and he was a, a surgeon ah. and he, he jumped in to do triage, try to get a pulse in my leg and saw there was nothing and immediately called for the ambulance. And uh, luckily, you know, ambulance came and let out in the hospital and uh, yeah, it was, it was super gnarly. Like when I look, what do you mean? But, but internally bleeding. Yeah. Like inter internally bled out was revived after a blood transfusion. Like, oh. yeah, the whole, like it got as bad as it could get. And thankfully I was at a hospital, like when it happened and, and had care and, um, not in like some other country where I didn't speak the language where I couldn't get, you know, medical attention immediately. Yeah. Or thankfully my dad was there I was to, gonna say, thank yeah, you. To, 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 you know, to, to take over and, and call that ambulance. Um, and in, you know, in hindsight, like it was a terrifying experience. And in the moment it was very like serene and, um, you know, not, not a big deal. And I was calm, but it, it, it definitely gave me a, a perception shift on my risk tolerance. There. And it was also a contract here for me. And I, I lost the sponsorship after that as well. Uh, so the, and my parents, like at that point too, were like, yeah, we're not, <laughs> we're, we're, we're done too. Um, and, and I, you know, I, I think I was, I wasn't quite done yet. Um, but it, it took a while to like, want to get back in the gate yeah. after recovering from that injury. So the, the following race season, I, um, got some support from a, a local bike company in San Diego that Mike King was working for, who's also a world champion downhill mountain biker. And, you know, he's a real local legend. Okay. All right. Um, who was from San Diego at the time. And, uh, you know, he encouraged me to, to keep going and got me a little bit of financial support to, to race um, some of the national series events. And then at, at that time, too, he was also working, beginning to work with USA Cycling to. Uh -huh. Uh, develop the BMX program for the Olympics that were upcoming in 2008. So he uh, he really encouraged me, and uh, and I'm thankful for to to get back on it, and you know believe that I can make a run at not only racing mountain bikes again, but going back to BMX with you know at least the, a shot at seeing how I could do there uh, oh. with a potential to you know make make a run at going for the Olympics, similar to how Jared Graves had done uh, switching from four cross back to, and to you, BMX. And you, did, and you went for it? Yeah, I, I you know, it, it renewed my, uh, my like desire and passion. And, um, you know, I, yeah, I was, I was all in on it. And then um, <laughs> one or two races into that tore my ACL. Oh, good. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, so it's funny, like a lot, a lot of people like will say like when they see my riding, like it's effortless, flow oh, style, absolutely. it's great. But yeah. like, man, like I, I, I got hurt a lot. 
And, and even though it doesn't look like I'm out of control and like, I'd like to think I'm not, like I had a tendency to find landmines <laughs> and just explode for, for no reason on the trail at times. And So how do you get yeah. an ACL tear? A lot of times people would get ACL tears from doing a pivot or lateral movement. And yeah. how do you do that on a bike? Cause... Yeah, so this, this one, I was at uh, a race at a, a guy's house by the name of Randy Stumphauser. And his, he had a backyard track and they call them Stumpy Trails. And it was like a dual slalom course, but on flat ground. I mean, and this was like, this guy was so ahead of his time. This was like the, one of the original pump tracks. No way. But it was a dual lane course. And, you know, he had pump tracks all over his property. And then he had this dual race course. So um, it was a, you know, DC sponsored event. Like it was a really cool event. They had a, a ton of local pros and, um, you know gosh they had a I remember who all was there but they, they had a lot of riders that did go on to race in the olympics um you know like uh kaylin young's one that comes to mind uh steven caesar you know real talent at that race so like i went to it and like qualified well and then i was in the semifinals of that race and yeah how'd i tear my acl i uh i bonked a, uh one of the final doubles so I, I went to jump it bonking meaning my front tire hit the top of it because i, I tried to keep it too low right so it, trying to and, like jump yeah, it like yeah for speed and, anytime you're jumping an obstacle your your energy can go two ways up or out right so if you're going fast you can either sky high it and jump it high like you would see a dirt jumper doing tricks yeah or you could try to keep it low as possible yeah. to carry your momentum forward yes so i kept it too low to the point where I kept it so low, I smashed into the face or the top of the landing. Uh -huh. And, you know, I was already racing hard. Like I was already committed to pumping the downside of that jump as hard as I possibly could. So you could. were coming down. Yeah. Cause it's a pump trap. Race, yeah. Right. So I'm, I'm, I'm anticipating the landing already, you know, starting to pump the landing before I even get to it. But instead of getting to the landing and pumping it, I just pumped into the top of it, which popped me uh -huh. instantly into a wheelie. And I was so committed to the pump that I looped out at full speed. So my front wheel went, you know, all the way up and over, like you're doing a wheelie right over the back. And I had to eject off of the back of the bike uh, and in stepping to try to run it out, just ACL popped. Oh my gosh. <laughs> oh, so you just collapse. I mean, you just, yeah, yeah, it was it. And I, I mean, I knew, I knew instantly that that was done. So I, uh, I, I, you know, in hindsight, I could have kept going, right, and, and raced without it, and yeah, made, made a yeah, 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 yeah. In fact, like I'm yeah. pretty sure this is public, but Jill Kittner had done a a similar shift going back from mountain bike racing to BMX as well when the Olympic cycle first came, and she tore her ACL, gosh, maybe six nine months before the Olympics, and yeah, she, you know. She braced, yeah, she braced it up. She didn't fix it. Yeah. She raced through that injury, made the team and won a bronze medal. So totally. not, not that it couldn't be done, yeah. um, but for me and then the headspace that I had with just a, a history of injury and then a, a successive run of, you know, very, very serious injuries, I, I didn't have the mindset to to keep going or, or push yeah, through it's it hard to get come keep getting back up after the those are extreme injuries yeah i mean the spleen one sounds um gnarly yeah yeah it was well the, the circumstances 
made it you know, yeah. gnarly because I didn't I didn't necessarily get rushed into the care yeah. as much as I could. So at, at that point, I, I made the decision like, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm going to get it fixed. I kind of lost my desire to, to keep racing as well, but not my passion for bikes that's been there since I was, you know, I can remember. Yeah. So I, I parlayed, uh, you know, my, my connections and my, my friendships really for people that I had known and, and ridden with or raced against to start helping out at the training center. So once I could ride my bike again, uh, I started going down there, you know, almost daily and helping with all the athletes that were training, Amazing. uh, you know, whether it was the men trying to make the team or, and going through the Olympic trials or, or the women who were just going for a selection, you know, I I would push the gate to be a a gate starter to help those guys or, or getting in the gate with them myself just to ride, um, you know, dicing up on the track with, you know, geez, at that point, the, the men that were racing, they were long gone, <laughs> but I, you know, I was doing laps, full laps with the women and, you know, being a, a rabbit for them to chase or, you know, it's cool. and uh, then as we got closer to the Olympic trials, Mike Day asked me if I would help him just prep his bike for the race. Cause I had also, um, you know, obsessed about bike setup and uh, wrenched on my own bikes, all those kinds of things too. And he knew that. So, I gave his bike a once over, completely took it apart, put it all back together, cleaned it. And then he won the Olympic trials and made the team. And Jill had made the selection, I believe based on points as well. And they were both Red Bull athletes. So I put together a budget and I pitched their bosses at Red Bull. No way. Yeah, what, what? I, I told their bosses what, what they needed, how many bikes they needed, you know, how many extra bikes they needed for testing and, and things like that, as well as all the components and stuff and figured out what their sponsors could provide and what they would needed to buy. And then, you know, pitched this whole presentation to them and that I would be uh, Mike and Jill's, um, you know, equipment manager and mechanic and got a budget from Red Bull to do that and just went like- You did it. Yeah, I did it. And ah. like went, went crazy over every aspect of- their two bikes and had a a huge, you know, at least for what I was doing, a huge budget to do that so that we were able to get custom stuff made through sponsors. Um, You know, I was uh, really, people weren't doing ceramic bearings much on anything but road bikes at that time. I had ceramic bearings fitted for their bottom brackets and their hubs, um, their their cassettes within their hubs. And even if it wasn't a real performance advantage, it was a mental advantage. Uh, we had custom made titanium bolts and washers and just all sorts of things so that their bikes were like the most trick things you could possibly ever imagine. And we did it in a way that was kind of undercover too, so that it wasn't obvious what it was that we were doing because th- those machines were just, you know, incredible. But from just looking at them, they, you know, you couldn't really tell the level of attention and detail and, and trickery that we had gone into making that those things so cool. yeah, as fast as they could be. Uh, and then Jill went on to, yeah, she got a bronze and Mike went on to get a silver. So Bam. I, yeah, I, I didn't get to, I didn't get to go there myself and, you know, it would have been a pipe dream, honestly, I, I think to have made that transition and had done it myself. Uh, so to, to, you know, have my journey still be able to be involved in it and to be able to use like, you know, other talents uh-huh. that I have to be a part of someone else's journey and their team. And then to, to go on and have both of them 
um, you know, do what they did. Like that, honestly, when I look back on it, that's probably one of the things I'm most proud of having been involved in in cycling uh, more than any of the uh, achievements that I've ever done. So I was, you know, really thankful that I was, you know, ha had that opportunity, and and more importantly that uh, both of them trusted me with you know th their opportunity right like because the the bike's got to get to the finish line and we really pushed the edge in, in testing and 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 doing what we did to to those bikes to then go race it on the the world's biggest stage well knowing you the, that i've known you for so many years and then knowing your story you are very um focused on the details i mean you said in the very beginning like how you ride your bike so <laughs> I trust you with a bike. Yeah. So speaking of bikes, yeah. we're kind of going fast forward, but we started the talk conversation. You won the mountain bike um, summer series. And I know it's a local thing, but I think between you and me and everybody that listens, it pulls in some of the best riders in town. I mean, and the best riders in town are well-known um, nationally. So you won 18 to 45 or something like that. So you're racing against kids um, and you raised the mountain bike on your drop bar. So tell me yeah. about that decision and how did you set up your bike for that? And I, we haven't even talked about you going from downhill to road to endurance. Yeah. I, I, so I skipped yeah, a yeah, whole yeah. chunk, yeah, no, no but I just uh, wanted, since we're talking about bikes. So yeah. tell me about this. What, what were you riding? And Yeah, so I, uh, I was riding a Diverge STR. Okay. Which is specialized, uh, newest. Um, they're positioning it as like an adventure gravel bike now. Uh, it's been out for maybe 10 months or so. Yeah. And uh, it, it's got slacker geometry, uh, you know, so uh, More like a angle. Like it's, yeah, it's, it's slacker, longer, lower. Uh, and, and it also has a, a future shock, or they branded it as future shock, which is 20 millimeters of. Uh, suspension underneath the stem, mm -hmm. which is a really innovative suspension design that they have. So rather than putting suspension in the fork, you have a rigid fork that has a cradle that then carries a dampening unit that the stem attaches to. And uh, the feedback from it, it isn't quite like a mountain bike fork, but it, it absolutely takes out the small bump chatter and the large square edge hits that you would get to your hands, which gives you a lot more confidence when you're descending yeah. and it reduces the accumulative, uh, accumulated fatigue yeah. over time. So yeah. great on the front end. And then uh, the, the rear end on this bike as well has a seat tube that isn't connected to the top tube like a traditional bike is. Okay. Uh, instead, the seat tube is completely independent from the top tube and the seat stays and it has 30 millimeters of engineered flex into it. And then it has a collar that is attached to a pole, a dampened pole shock that sits in the top tube. So the, that 30 millimeters of flex then uh, gives you uh, a feeling of suspension as you're okay. seated on the bike. So okay. while, while you're riding that bike, if you stand up and you stomp on the pedals, it's fully rigid, just like a gravel bike or a road bike, like instantaneous acceleration. But when you're seated on it, you are um, you you have a certain amount of compliance and absorption of what you're getting. I mean, it, it's nothing like a, a full suspension mountain bike by any means whatsoever. But at the same time, like if anybody knows from riding a gravel bike, once you start getting into rougher trails, it's difficult to stay seated with meaningful pedals. 
right? When you, you, you can't put a lot of power down when you're getting bounced around on the seat. Like you have to spend more time either standing or putting energy into having weight in your feet to get your butt off the seat just yeah. enough so that there's a buffer between it. Otherwise, if you just you get, your, like a horse, yeah, you're riding like exactly. That. All your weight on the seat, you get like ejector seat every time you hit a a, a larger bump. Mm -hmm. But with this, with this, what they call the the rear future shock, that that flex in it with the the damper on it allows you to just stay seated and really mash and, and continue hammering through rougher stuff that you might not otherwise be able to pedal through. So yeah. if you're riding light mountain bike trails. Um, you know, so no, nothing that's like too chunky Lake or yeah, like a, like a Lake Hodges or a PQ or even Del Mar Mesa, things like that. Like for me, it was an obvious no brainer bike of choice. I mean, the, the, the bike, as far as how it handles and steers is very much like a, a hardtail XC racing bike from 15 years or so ago before the, the current mountain bike long and low trend started coupled with having some su suspension into it. And then it's way lighter than a mountain bike. And you know, I could get away with riding smaller, faster rolling tires on it. Yes, that what kind of wheels and tires do you run on that bike? Yeah, so that, that bike's set up with um I've got the Reval Terra CLX wheels, which are 25 mil internal width reel. Okay. Which is pretty well settled, it seems, for gravel bikes at least. Okay. With uh 42 mil tires okay. on it for that. And with the 25 mil width. Those will blow up to about 45 mil okay. um, once they're inflated. Uh, so a little beefier tire. Yeah. I mean, th then like a traditional gravel setup. Yeah. Because it is, you know, racing mountain bikes and doing mountain biking and need to be able to compete with mountain bikes once you do head downhill, like a little bit larger tire. Although I don't think the rolling resistance hit is all of that large with a setup. I'd pair it with a... Um, an IRC double cross front, mm -hmm. which has a really tightly spaced knob pattern on the center line for rolling. So it's lower rolling resistance. And then the side lugs are a lot more dispersed and it's got some transitional support as well. So that it, it once you start leaning that over, it's got good bite yeah. to it. It's also similar to an Ardent Max or Maxis Ardent mountain bike tire, which I have a lot of time on and comfortable mm -hmm. with. Uh, and then in the rear, I'd run a, a semi-slick fast rolling tire, okay. usually a, a specialized pathfinder. Okay. Uh, and that's a super fast rolling retire with some transit, small transitional knobs and some small side lugs for when you're really rolling it over. And that, that seemed like a, a good all around setup that I would run, not only at like local XC races, like they have at Lake Hodges, but um that's like kind of my base tire setup if I'm traveling somewhere to go ride gravel. Yeah. And I don't know what it's going to be. Like, yeah. that's what it, I'm going to ride. Yeah. It's 650 or 700? 700. Okay. Yeah. Nice. Nice. Okay. And how, how much does it weigh? I'm always curious. Oh, gosh. 20 pounds. Okay. Maybe. Yeah. Um, not, not totally obsessive about it. No. And it's not a weight weenie build on it. Okay. Like by any means either. I think I've got a SRAM force build on it. Um, I've got the five dev cranks on it as yeah. well, which are about the same weight as the, the SRAM forks cranks too, which is nice. Like, you know, it's relatively light, right? Yeah. It's not a weight penalty and um, a little bit more comfort than having carbon cranks. Yeah. Uh, when you're really over biking a gravel bike, taking it mountain biking. So, 
So, and I know we're, I don't want to take up too much of your time. There's so much I want to ask you, so I'll try to keep them limited. Okay. But for your wait, for you showing up and winning, um, two questions is one, it's not just your bike that helped you win. I mean, you got a lot of fitness and your skills. Um, so I want you to talk to that a little bit. And also, um, do you get any, what's the conversation about like racing other mountain bikers on a drop bar? Is it like bring the best bike you can? So does anybody give you, is it like, anyway, I just, those are my two <laughs> yeah. questions. Well, I guess that's like, as a threshold matter, I, I don't have an XC race bike. So ah, yeah, and, and you don't have a race bike, mountain bike. No, I've got an enduro bike and a dirt jump bike. So ah, I, that is your mountain bike. Yeah, <laughs> that, that, that kind of is my mountain bike. So the, the decisions kind of forced on me, unless I was buying another mountain bike. But for the last like four or five years, I've been so hooked on road cycling. Yeah, uh, that like I, I'm not riding mountain bikes really i mean i'm yeah. doing it once or twice a year on my own and i'm I'm more taking my kid mountain biking and doing dad rides so i haven't had like the it hasn't seemed like a smart decision to spend the kind of money to get like a, a nice racing world mountain, cup yeah world cup mountain bike <laughs> yeah. and that's like you know ten twelve thousand dollars yeah. right um to, to go race it a handful of times a year doing the local racing so uh, for me, it makes total sense to to race uh, that diverge. Um, I I don't know whether it's a advantage for me or for anyone or not. Like I I for me, I'm probably more comfortable on it, and 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 I felt that I was fast on it. But would someone else have like the same experience racing the same bike, and like would it be an advantage for them? You know, I I don't know. Like unless they, unless they tried, um, or I don't know if I would do any different if I, if I rode a mountain bike, if I would be slower. I, I definitely feel like there was times on those particular courses where I had an advantage with carrying momentum and rolling speed, but then there's other times where I was at an obvious disadvantage for the mountain bikers who were able to take better lines or carry more speeds in, in downhills. And I'd have to burn matches to get back onto their wheels. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. um, yeah, hard to say. And then, did anybody get you know frustrated or upset by it? And I probably I you know I, I heard a, I heard a couple people like oh, okay. saying things like I, I should be racing in the in the drop bar in the drop bar class. Um, but you know nobody ever said anything to me uh, personally about it. And and I I doubt they would. I mean I'm racing everybody's that I'm racing with is more or less friends out there so i yeah. you know i doubt that anybody would be upset about it but if you know i would encourage anybody to to race a, a gravel bike out there in that class too if if they felt that that was the reason why i was winning let's race <laughs> go ahead yeah yeah, yeah. Let, and, let's race gravel bikes and then uh as far as like winning i mean and you have your bike i feel like it's just best suited for you and your skill set and what you have um what was like I mean, you guys were racing head to head still. I mean, the people out there that you were racing against, I saw the people that were in the top 10 were all legitimate, great riders. Oh, uh, thanks. Yeah. So how did you keep did just showing up and just keep making it your workout of the week or like what would you? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, each each race was unique in, in how it played out. And I won five or seven, so I got I got beat at, at a couple of them. Okay. And learned from you know <laughs> the the losses on on those two as well. 
Um, a couple of them I was able to get away and go solo, you know, on either the second or third lap. And there was just a lack of organization behind me and nobody wanted to chase until it was too late. And then on a couple of them, you know, went to the line in a sprint and was able to win sprints on. Okay, I, cool. I think that's far and away my my preference. Yeah. On how to race a race, I, I'd rather put in a, a just a berserker effort, you know, super <laughs> close to the finish line, and then spend thirty or forty minutes by yourself pushing the pedals. You know, it's already yeah, like, cool. It, it's a lot more mellow to just try to stay calm and conserve and save it for a burst at the end. Yeah. Um. But yeah, it was. Uh, they were all super fun events. You know, uh, Victor and his family do an incredible job out there at those races creating a good environment yeah. for everybody, particularly the kids with the kids races yeah. they do beforehand. You know, my warmups would be with my son. He'd race the kids race and I'd just follow behind him. Uh, and then it's also super cool. And, and you know, pr props to Victor for doing this is like, he puts so much time and energy into the the pit setup and the expo and lining the, the finish line and the start straightaways with all the sponsor banners and things like that. So you really get the vibe of it being this, you know, big regional or national event, but it's just our local weekly race series and everybody gets to come in and, you know, get fun pictures. And, um, you know, it, it really does an A plus job on all of those events. Right. So thank, thanks to those guys, uh, you know, it's, it's the highlight of the year to always go out and, and support him in those events and mm -hmm. get to race in them. Yeah. I, I agree a hundred percent. Um, a lot of respect for Victor. Um, okay. So I know I need to kind of wrap things up. So we can keep going for as long as you like. I, I, <laughs> if people are still listening or maybe they could pause the podcast, right? I, <laughs> well, I guess I wanted to, um, uh, Chris, the, you know, the everyday guy, you know, you, you work a full-time job. You're the, so just paint a picture of like what you do for work. You have two kids, you're busy. Like, um, I think a lot of people out there getting eight to 10, maybe 12 hours a week of riding is hard. I yeah. mean, how do you, so just. Yeah. It's all life's a balance, right? So in case people kind of alluded to, they know that we're here at Better Buzz. So why don't you start about like what you do, you know, and your family and all that. Yeah, sure. Thanks. I'm, uh, I work for Better Buzz Coffee. Uh, we're a San Diego-based coffee company with 16 locations uh, in and around San Diego County, although two of those are in uh, Riverside, one in Menifee and Temecula. I'm our in-house counsel, um, which is a, uh, I'm, you know, effectively our in-house attorney, although I got that title, I think, just because I went to law school. <laughs> uh, I, I'm not really doing attorney things day in and day out. Uh, I get to have my hands in all of the aspects of the business, ranging from, you know, marketing and operations and human resources to um, consumer packaged goods with our, our line that we just launched in Target and online and on Amazon and um, some local specialty retailers. So I've got to help with product design, even things like that. Uh, but then the overwhelming majority of my time is being part of our new store development team. So I'm on the, the front line working with our real estate managers and brokers on helping with site selection and then negotiating uh, leases for potential new locations. And then once they're inked, handing them off to our development team to um, you know, implement those plans and do new store build outs. So it's you know different every day. It's uh, exciting and it's a brand that I 
you know, I, I believe in uh, in the vision of it, and I think it has exponential opportunity for personal and professional growth, and it's exciting. And you know, most importantly, I love the coffee. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, both of those are probably pretty buzz right now. Yeah, yeah <laughs> absolutely. And uh, before that, I did uh, business litigation and uh, outside general counsel services, and then uh, advised uh, various clients in action sports uh, as well. But the the opportunity to not have to record billable hours and be a part of a business working for, you know, a really exciting goal versus uh, doing cleanup or dispute resolution day yeah. in, day out with an unset schedule. Like I, I jumped at the opportunity to come here and have been here since 2019. So that's been uh, great and exciting. And our, our founder is a, a avid mountain biker and uh, motocross racer as well. So riding bikes here, um, you know, is really ingrained in like the, the company culture, at least some of the people that I, I work with day in and day out. So they're always supportive of, you know, me heading off to a race. If I ever want to do a BWR or something like that, like it's nice. like, you know, of course, and then to be able to put the time in to, you know, to, to achieve personal goals at those kind of long endurance events. I'll typically will commute to work a couple of days a week, which can get me five or six hours of riding. And then on weekends, I love doing group rides on the road. Mm -hmm. So that's an easy, you know, two to four hours on a Saturday, Sunday morning. I'm home relatively early before okay. the, the kids and wife's day starting. So, okay. uh, you know, that, that'll get me 10 plus hours a week of good, good riding. Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, time to, to be present for my family and do stuff and, more recently with my son that's been doing quite a bit of mountain biking so I'm doing two a days I'm doing road rides in the morning going home having lunch and then taking my kid out to do mountain biking is he like you uh yeah I, I think he's got that instinctive flow but I don't think he has the obsession quite <laughs> like I did I, I, by his age I was already like living and breathing it and, and he he likes video games quite a bit although I, I will say like uh, Specialized just came out with the Turbo Levo 24, which is a kid's e-bike using the same motor and battery as the adult SL line just put into a, a kid's bike. And it's been a transformative experience for both him and I. Yeah. And I honestly feel like that bike is almost more for me than it is for him because my rides now with him have gone from being patient dad rides where you're riding, you know, relatively slow maybe doing six, seven, eight miles over an hour and a half or yeah. two. You can't have a kid that's complaining about climbing and, <laughs> you know, right? Like that. We all, I'm laughing because I've been there. <laughs> absolutely. But you, you put them on an e-bike. <laughs> they're getting a, a similar workout, right? They're, they're still pushing the pedals, but they're going fast. Mm -hmm. In fact, I'm getting dropped. If we're getting, <laughs> if we're climbing around flat grounds, I'm getting dropped. And he's turning around laughing and saying, come on, dad. So, so you're on a push bike. Oh, yeah, you're, my, you're riding a normal I'm bike. My, I'm on my STR oh, okay, yeah. and, and I'm doing intervals, having to keep up with him if he's motivated. And, you know, now we're doing rides that are hour and a half, two hours. We're doing 15 plus miles, averaging 10 miles an hour, yeah. which is almost as fast as I would go if I were to go ride an XC or, you know, trail bike, mountain biking yeah. as it is. Yeah. And he's covering so much more ground. You know, it's, it's not an exercise in patience for me, but by any no, means whatsoever. <laughs> yeah. It's just exercise. Uh, and it's just unlocked so much adventure and potential for him. And it's something that we can do together. And he's asking to do it. 
all the time. Aww, yeah, way nice. more. Yeah, he likes it more. And the, the other day, he told me if he had to pick between, you know, his Nintendo or his e-bike, he'd, he'd choose his e-bike to go I mountain biking with me. I don't know if he was trying to just butter me up or not, but, you know, I'd like to think it was truthful. But the end result is like, yeah, that that bike's just, you know, incredible. I, I can't recommend it highly enough for any dads that are out there that are listening, the kids that are seven to 10. You guys know common issues that you're going to have taking your kids out is like, you're, you're, you're on a pedal bike, you're limited by where you can ride, by how far you can ride, and you know, what you can ride. And you got, I'm on a bike like that. Like, yes, it's an e-bike, but it doesn't, it's not an e-bike in the sense that it's like this overwhelmingly powerful electric motorcycle that, you know, is, is dangerous or any means. Like, it's just going to allow them to cover way more ground, ride trails that they ordinarily wouldn't be able to, especially when they're climbing, and they're going to have way more fun and, and, you know, inherently in that you're going to have fun with them doing it too. So, yeah, I mean, they're um, definitely worth looking into. Like it's been a, a great thing and it's, it's actually rekindled my, yeah. my passion a little bit mm-hmm. for going back to riding mountain bikes a bit because I've been just fully obsessed with road. Like I was saying for four or five years now, and yeah. I have found myself, you know, going out to tunnels quite a bit more yeah, okay. and exploring around and, and looking forward to those rides with him and getting out in the dirt. Yeah, that's cool. Um, So what, so what is your favorite trail or what, where do you like to ride when you, you mentioned PQ? Yeah. I, uh, I'm a fan of tunnels. Yeah. That's probably my favorite. Well, our size too, yeah, right? Being, yeah. being smaller, I'm not having to duck quite as much under those canopies. Um, but just something about like the the energy and the vibe that you get being down in there is unlike anything else I've ever experienced riding my bike all over the world. I'm blessed that that it's in our backyard. Um, the trails aren't particularly challenging, although when you ride them at speed, speed? oh yeah, they they, yeah. Be, they become very challenging yeah. and like you you get put in the moment very very quickly because you have a small margin of error to stay on the yep. line. Um, and especially when you're ducking in and around trees, like they're slalom gates. You know, at times you kind of feel like a jet fighter flying in and around them. And some of the trails in there have, uh, you know, almost like being in a luge run where you have embankments on them that you can carry speed through fun. So those trails really check all the boxes for me in terms of just being fun. I I don't think I ever get tired or bored of riding out there. I love I love the tunnels. I haven't been there in a while. Um, Okay, so last question I got is what's uh, your schedule like? I know you mentioned like kind of, let me just ask you the question. What's the rest of the sk- year look like for you for riding, racing? Do you travel and ride? Um, or do you think that far ahead or you just do one week at a time? Like what? What's yeah, that? I mean, I, my goal events every year for just, you know, personal, personal goals and, and events that I really like doing um, are all heavily front loaded to the beginning of the year. Like oh, okay. the uh, rock cobbler. Yeah. Yeah. Like that's that, a great race. That, that's a super fun adventure. Yeah. <laughs> like first and foremost, that is a cool adventure. And then uh, skill set wise, it's something that I think suits me super great. Um, you know, it's very much heavily favored for someone with mountain biking skills. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's more of a mountain bike race that you have to do on a on a gravel mm-hmm. bike. Um, so yeah, love love that one. That's in February. And then also the local BWR, so BWR San Diego. And do you do the so waffle fun. or do you do the wafer? Uh, I, I've done, I've done the waffle. Although two years ago I did both. I did them. Oh, you yeah. did that one. Yeah, I, oh, did, I did the combined. 
um, got tenth overall combined, and that that was the hardest thing I've physically ever done. Yeah, I remember talking to Brian Scarborough about that one because yep. yeah, he won, he won it, it, and I was like, "What did you?" Yeah, that's brutal. So uh, you know, those events have already passed. I think that for, so for the rest of the year, I'm going to do the Mammoth Fondo. Oh, that's next September week, September ninth. Oh, yeah, yeah so yep. two weeks. Yep. Um, I, I did that for the first time last year. And that's a, a really fun, fondos are just, I, I like doing them a lot I and mean, they're not races, but everybody at the front of those is racing. Yeah. So, you know, it's kind of a race, um, but the distance is great and a hundred miles, five hour event. Like that's just enough. You don't have to put in a crazy amount of hours to be able to survive or even race that pretty competitively. And once you start getting into the waffle lengths, like that's, that's a commitment. Yes. And, um, you know, the, the scales will tip for your life balance. Something's going to suffer, whether it's work or, or exactly. family, if you're juggling all three, you yeah. got to have buy-in from your family yep. really. Cause I don't, you know, at least for me, work suffering is never an option. Yeah. Um, so, you know, family's got to be on board to, to allow me the, the time <laughs> to put in for that. So the, yeah, Fondo is coming up next. And then after that will be the filthy fifty yep. quick and dirty in October. That's also a, yeah, super fun event. And then, um, yeah, nothing. And then start over. Next year. Yeah, start it all over. But, you know, r racing at this point for me is not not a like priority or a, a huge focus. Like I, I just I love riding uh, for, for fun and for fitness and I really enjoy doing group rides every weekend as well on the road and just going out and trying to smash my friends all the time. Um, you know, that that kind of itches that competitive urge mm -hmm. that I have. And then um, that just doing those gets you enough fitness to go up and, and do some of these regional longer endurance events and, and have fun at them and, you know, push whatever your, your current fitness boundaries are at that point. And, and for me, that's, that's enough where I, I'm at in my life and, you know, just go and do my best with whatever I have, you know, at that particular point in time and enjoy the adventure and the, the challenge of those types of events. Yeah. Perfect. I think that's a great, like, full circle of all the things um that you have done um i can't i really appreciate your time today i know you're you got a lot and it's cool to see better buzz headquarters and it's, it's beautiful um beautiful area that you guys have here and thank you for my my horchata latte <laughs> not not a chai latte <laughs> well, not that, that yeah thanks again to you and anybody who sat through and was still listening to the end like you know that uh, that means a lot to me that someone would be interested to to hear my journey through riding. Uh, yeah, I appreciate that. Thanks to everybody, and and also thank you to you for oh. you know not only hosting the podcast and having me on it, but um, this and all of your efforts in coaching and all of the energy that you put into the local community to to help other people and to foster their passions mm -hmm. and, and and you know from every spectrum from someone who's just learning out and is getting into the sport with skill development to people who are, you know, trying to do their best racing competitively and, and you're helping everybody in between. And, and I feel like it's totally selfless. And I've known you for a long time now. I've met probably like eight or nine years ago in Strava when you were working for Intuit and, and you made the leap to, to put your, you know, your time and energy and leaving that job so that you could help other people. Like, you know, it, it's, it's admirable and you deserve a lot of praise and credit for it. So I just want to recognize that and thank wow, you. Wow. That's, that's very nice to yeah. hear. And I do love what I get to do. And the podcast is, um, is definitely like a 
baby of mine that I, I want to nourish. Like I said, I don't know if I said this in the beginning, but we like I interviewed you a long time ago. And it's because it's people like you that show people what is possible. And so it just helps build the community, I guess, one person at a time, just like what we are. Awesome. So awesome. Well, thank you for, for again for your time. And uh yeah, we'll sign off. Cool. All right. Thanks all. Okay. Thank you. Welcome, welcome back, everybody, and thank you so much for listening to this uh, episode 32 with Chris uh, Goodflow, and thank you again to Chris for all his time. It's really, really nice to be able to have um, somebody sitting across and just being able to talk more about uh, different parts of the riding, the racing, and get into more of the nitty-gritty, so Chris was very generous with his time, and I'm very, very grateful for it. And thank you for listening. Um, I wanted to follow up a couple of things that were mentioned that um, if you're interested. So one is the the bike that he was riding, the one that he was talking about, the Specialized Diverge. Um, Specialized San Diego in town, they do a really good job with demoing their bikes. So if you are interested in trying that bike out or maybe another one of the Specialized Fleet, um, I did put information in the notes on how to contact them and, and get that um, organized. <laughs> and then the other thing I wanted to mention was that at the very end, he was talking about the Filthy 50. Um, it's coming up at the end of October, which is not too long from now, about eight weeks or so. And so if you're interested in signing up, I really highly encourage you to do that sooner than later. So I put a link in the notes as well as I'm offering two pre-ride um, pre-rides to get people, to help people get prepared for that. And I um, put a link into how to RSVP and get more information on that. The next one is coming up on September 17th. So again, thank you guys so much for listening and supporting and just being awesome. Um, it's really nice to hear people tell me that these um, conversations mean a lot to them. And so it means a lot to me as well. Um, anyway, have an awesome rest of your day and evening, and we'll hopefully See you soon.